Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an energetic and embodied life. So today's guest is someone that I have been fanboying over for years. It's Kelly McGonigal. And she is one of my favorite science, personal development, psychology teachers and writers. I've got, I think, all her books, and they're all in different sections of my library. There's the Habits and Behavioral Science set one, The Willpower Instinct. There's Stress, The Upside of Stress, and her latest work, The Joy of Movement, Exercise and Movement. She also has an amazing audio course uh, available on Audible or through Sounds True. It's called The Science of Self-Compassion. And that is both a scientific tour de force and a big-hearted hug from a caring friend. And it occurred to me that if I talk too much about like what's in the interview, I might actually be discouraging you from listening just by taking up so much time. You're here. You're probably going to listen. So all I just want to say is that this book, The Joy of Movement, is both a work of science and a love letter to the human body and the human spirit. And we'll get to it in just a second. A couple of quick announcements. Um, first, we are just about closed for New Orleans. We don't really have spaces available unless you are in the city and don't need lodging. And then we can talk. You can check out sicktofit.com slash NOLA, lowercase n-o-l-a. But we do have space. We've just opened up enrollment for the Sick to Fit retreat in North Carolina beginning of June. I believe that's the 4th through the 7th. You can find that at sicktofit.com slash nc. Second thing, um, I have two openings for coaching clients, for laser coaching clients for February 2020. That's this month. And if you want to find out more about my signature laser coaching problem, problem, <laughs> laser coaching program, you can check that out at plantyourself.com slash laser, all lowercase L-A-S-E-R. It's a program, not a problem, I promise. And finally, WellStart Health is opening up enrollment. This is the first time in a little while we have opened up public enrollment and not just to uh, California health plans or private companies. And that starts on February 10th. And you can find out more and enroll at wellstarthealth.com. Just uh, click around. You'll find it. If not, write to me and I'll tell our web developer to make it clearer. You can write to me at hj at plantyourself.com if you have questions. Well, starts a 12-week program. Uh, Josh and I do the majority of the video coaching, but we also have dietitians, doctors, lots of other coaches, including many people who have been 
amazing and inspiring guests on this podcast. And if you would like to reverse or halt chronic disease and get to a lean, healthy weight and become an athlete, I highly recommend the WellStart Health experience. Again, wellstarthealth.com. One last thing, I've decided to double the output of this podcast by adding a Friday podcast, which is just me um, basically narrating the week's newsletter. It's something about healthy habits, about how to live a better life. So it's not interview. It's shorter. The last one I just did on this past Friday was about 15 minutes. So there'll be that length. And it's just a way for people who may not have time to read to uh, be able to listen to what I write on a commute. And if you like it and you'd like to encourage me to keep doing more publication, one way to do that is to become a patron, a supporter, a financial supporter of Plant Yourself. And you can do that by going to patreon.com and just searching for Plant Yourself and become an ongoing monthly contributor. All right, let's get to today's amazing conversation about movement. Without further ado, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I have been following your published career since they turned into books. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, one, one of the games I play with, with authors that I like is try to predict what they're going to do next, sort of a, a trajectory game. And, and this, your, your latest book, The Joy of Movement, kind of took me by surprise in just the best way. So I think maybe we could start by just kind of introducing yourself to folks who don't know you and kind of give us a sense of, of what you do, what you're interested in, and, and um, the, the arc of your, of your research. Sure. So I'm a mind-body psychologist. I'm interested in the mind-body connection, how our emotions influence our health, how social relationships are important to our well-being. Um, and I've studied everything from, you know, what's the best way to deal with anger uh, in terms of how it affects your heart and your immune system to what are ways that people can increase their compassion and empathy for others as well as themselves. Um, and as you mentioned, so I've written a bunch of books and all of my books are based on courses that I've taught. So you know, the Willpower Instinct was based on a course I taught called The Science of Willpower, which is really just a response to the fact that so many people told me that they had trouble making positive choices to support their health because they felt like they didn't have any willpower. So I was like, well, science can help. So I wrote a book about it. And I taught a course about it first. Um, you know, The Upside of Stress was uh, based on a course I taught on the new science of stress and how to live well with stress um, because I wanted to share insights from neuroscience and psychology that says there are ways that you can think about stress, respond to stress, that really reduce the harmful impact that it has on your health and your happiness. So I basically think of myself as out there trying to share science that helps people be happier and healthier and strengthens communities. Um, and so this new book, for me, it's not so much like what's next, it's more what's been in my heart for the past two decades. Um, and finally, my publisher sort of like relented and um, said, okay, you can write about this thing that you are so passionate about, which is movement and exercise, because I started teaching um, yoga and dance and, and group fitness when I was 22 years old. So I've been teaching for 20 years, started when I was a graduate student in psychology. And I quickly realized that exercise is one of the absolute best things you can do for your mental health. It's a marvelous way to form friendships and build community. And um, so this is the book that looks at the science of why. Um, and I guess I'm glad I caught you by surprise in a, in a positive way. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've you write in your books a lot about the courses that birthed them, right? So yeah. I I I found myself like really jealous of your students. It's like I just saw somebody somebody posted a meme on Facebook. It said, you know, I'm so glad that I learned um, in school how to how to uh, calculate the area of a parallelogram instead of doing my taxes because <laughs> you know it comes in so handy during parallelogram season. And, <laughs> And I'm just thinking about like to me to have learned about how to deal with willpower and impulse control to get the results I want out of life or to be able to handle stress in a positive and, and generative way. You know, like I didn't come across anything like that. And I can see why these courses are among the most most popular um, that, that are offered. Um, and let's be honest, I teach what I want to learn, too. So, you know, I, I I know the science because I'm out there looking for answers to my own experiences, too. So that's one of the great privileges of you know getting to do the work that I do is I can ask the questions like what would support my own well-being, too? What do I what do I want to learn more about? Figure it out. And I also I think of my students as being a tremendous resource for me because I learned so much about works, what works for other people other minds, other bodies, other lived experiences. And some of my, my early, like the beta testers of some of those early courses, I mean, they were, they would tell me when a scientific idea was interesting and it just did not work when they tried to apply it in their own lives. So my students, I'm grateful to my students too. Right. It's, it certainly felt like, um, at least, you know, in the, the, the first two books, the willpower instinct and the upside of stress that you were giving us exercises at the end of the chapter that had been stress test that, that you know, they, they were better because you had all these guinea pigs in your classes to uh, to see what worked. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love sharing those stories, too. You know, my latest book, I I went beyond my own students, of course, but um, to be able to share some of the things that I've witnessed about how movement has changed people's lives as well. So if they, they stress test it for me and um, they also, you know, share experiences that I often find inspiring and moving. Yeah. And I've um, you know, you talked about like the, just the joy of talking to someone and, and, and having them tell you that moment when, you know, they had a transcendent experience uh, through exercise or movement. And like, you know, oh, my, my gosh, go ahead. I, like I, I yes, them being in tears, me being in tears. So I, I'm sure your audience is like, what is she talking about? Can I just share just a couple of examples, please? Um, so I think of like the. Uh, the, the people in my book, often I found them by putting out a message somewhere that said, I want to talk to somebody who loves like CrossFit and it's changed their life. Or I want to talk to someone who loves running or dancing or yoga. And um, people would often self-select and reach out to me and say, well, I have a story. And it would be stories like um, one woman. This is such an incredible story. Um, she was so depressed. She felt so isolated in her life that she actually had a plan to take her own life. And she decided to go to the gym for one last workout. And when she was doing her workout, she ended up um, deadlifting more weight than she'd ever been able to lift before in a sort of shocking personal best feat of strength. And in that moment that she was literally lowering the barbell and sensing her own strength, a strength that surprised her, she decided that she wanted to live and she wanted to see how strong she could become. Like stories like that or, you know, the story of um, another woman who talked about feeling 
was just frustrated and down on herself while she was running a race in Hawaii. And she got to the top of this hill and there was this amazing view. And she heard the voice of her grandfather telling her to appreciate life and be grateful. And she starts running down the hill, repeating the words, thank you, thank you. She's so filled with, um, with awe and wonder and gratitude for life. Um, I think that often the stories that touched me were these, these amazing moments where there was something about how movement affects your brain chemistry and the meaning that we make out of movement, like what it means to reach the top of a hill or what it means to lift something heavier than you knew you could carry. Um, so it's the chemistry, the brain chemistry, the metaphor, um, often having a story that we can tell about ourselves that is meaningful and powerful and that it collides in that moment, this, this kind of emotional breakthrough. Those were the kinds of stories that, um, you know, is such a privilege to be able to hear and share. Yeah. And, you know, my audience has heard me do a lot of interviews. There's, there's a, a secret group of fat and ex-fat guys called the Missing Chins Run Club, um, whom I, I made friends with through uh, my writing partner, Josh Lajani, who used to be 420 pounds from uh, the Bayou of Louisiana. And he discovered plants and running um, was on the Rich Roll podcast in 2013. And he felt like Rich gave him a mandate to uh, to share his story because he was two years ago on the cover of Runner's World magazine. And so this group uh, and, you, and you talk a lot about in the in, in the um, endurance chapter of the book, like the the value of endurance running um, and all the lives that that have been saved and the transcendent experiences and the people you know in this group writing about their depression, writing about these terrible tragedies that have uh, overwhelmed them in their lives and the the solace they find on the long runs and the camaraderie. Yes. Um, yes. And that and that this was true. I heard stories like this, both for people who were struggling to run their first 5K, as well as people who were training for a 50K. So it's really it's it's about starting where you are and experiencing yourself as someone who can persist and can endure and the thing that, that came through in so many stories, it was especially remarkable in the ultra endurance world because I didn't expect it um, because I didn't know as much about that community. But at every level of experience and every level of sort of athleticism, people would talk about the, the way that they felt supported by other people in their community, people who ran with them or walked with them or were in their dance classes with them. And also how they had an opportunity to support others, that it's a real expression of interdependence. And I mentioned, you know, one of the things I study is how do we develop compassion for ourselves and others? And I'm always saying to people that compassion is not a do-it-yourself project. Like mm. it's not you give it all to other people. You're the source of it. You have to help others and care about others. And it's also self-compassion is not do-it-yourself. It's not like, all right, you know, toughen up. You're, you're suffering. Okay, so be kind to yourself and, you know, go resolve your suffering on your own, that self-compassion. That true compassion is about being able to witness and see when other people need help and to have the courage to help them and to take joy in that. And, and the same is true when you need help, that you have the courage to ask for help and to accept it and can even find some joy in relying on others. And that was the theme that came through so loud and clear when I talked to the endurance athletes, because as they would say to me, like, it's possible to run a marathon on your own not really possible to run an ultra marathon on your own at some mm -hmm. point you're going to need help and at some point you will have the opportunity to help others 
and that 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 being able to experience that part of their humanity was as important or more important than knowing that they were somebody who could physically push through discomfort and push through fatigue, that they discovered their inner strength, but they also discovered the role of community and what was available to them. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, reading the stories in your book and then, you know, thinking about what I know and what I've experienced as an ultra runner myself. It's almost the difference between like reading a book about you know, the unity of all being and taking shrooms and, <laughs> and like going there and going, oh, like, yeah, like this is now this is obvious. Like it's it's in my cells now. It's not just a, a an intellectual construct. I think that's so that's a great parallel for a number of reasons. Not that I actually have not taken um, entheogen, so I can't speak from personal experience, although I hear from the research that it's a very promising way to experience um, deep psychological transformation. So um, one of the things that I think is so important about movement is that it is an embodied experience that is hard to argue with. And so we talked about a couple of those, but, but also that you can experience tremendous joy and a sense of connection to others or that being out in nature, you know, hiking or swimming or cycling, that you can experience a sense of yourself as connected to life itself, to, to nature and to the universe in a way that sounds that sounds kind of like woo-woo until you're having the direct experience of it because there's something about the environment and the movement that allows you to have that experience, to see things differently, to to have your senses turned on in a different way. And um, in the chapter on why exercising in nature is so important for so many people, I actually compare it directly to entheogens like mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca because they seem to have... Um, a similar effect on the brain as exercising outdoors, just sort of like, you know, compounded in a much more extreme uh, way and sometimes unpredictable way. Um, but that being in nature can open you up to the same kind of psychological insights and sense of connection to the universe. Uh, these, these amazing spiritual experiences that people report while taking um, these, these uh, conscious consciousness altering drugs. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like I was really like sur sur joyfully surprised at this latest book, but I was doubly surprised when I was reading it to discover that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be sort of like another, you know, John Rady spark sort of the latest research on how exercise can improve your mood and productivity, but but went into these much you know deeper and personal and murkier qualities that, you know, on the, on the cover, you talk about how exercise can help us find happiness, hope, connection and courage. And at the same time, as I, you know, was getting blown away by a lot of the science, I was there was also this part of me going, well, duh, this is like Kelly just wrote a book on like why oxygen is important. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're like we're, it's, it's insane that we even have to talk about like why, like, oh, being embodied is a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, so one of the challenges when writing about science like this is you really don't want to come across as a scold. I mean, I, you could write a book that's like exercise can prevent dementia, exercise can prevent heart attacks, and here's, you know, a thousand scientific reasons why. And I really, I wanted to write something that was more like a love letter and that people who have had experiences like what we're talking about can feel affirmed in their own direct experience or if they need to explain to someone else why running or swimming or yoga or dancing is so important to them. Like here's a book that says, you, know, you think CrossFit is just about, you know, being a tough, you know, whatever. 
well, here's read these stories about this reverend who uses CrossFit in her as part of her ministry and how it changes lives. Like this is this is real and this is meaningful. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book and why it, it you know is not just a list of a hundred ways that exercise can change your brain for the better. Um, and the other thing is that I actually feel like the science itself, when it comes, the science that I wanted to write about in this book was the science that filled me with wonder and hope itself. Um, and so, you know, when I was sneaking in some of the latest neuroscience, it was things like how your muscles um, manufacture and release chemicals called hope molecules when you exercise. And like often I would stumble in the science on language that I was almost poetry describing what I had directly experienced, that that exercise can literally be an intravenous dose of hope because of how those molecules make their way through your bloodstream to your brain. Or when I was writing about exercising in nature, coming across this theory called the old friends hypothesis, that bacteria in dirt mm -hmm. is an antidepressant and can actually prevent loneliness by reducing inflammation in your brain. Like loneliness sometimes is not just about not having relationships. It can actually be sort of like a physical symptom and inflammation can increase the chances that you have trouble connecting with others or feeling a sense of belonging. And that literally there's, there's bacteria in dirt that that is so important to your brain that it's an old friend that can reduce <laughs> symptoms of loneliness. I feel like there's poetry in a lot of the science. And I wanted to share a feeling, not just a fact. Yeah, it's, cer it's certainly a love letter. And there were definitely times where I was, you know, damp damping my eyes. Um, <laughs> But the I mean, the other thing and you mentioned this a, a little bit on Rich Roll that, you know, you, like when you look at your career and the commonalities, um, like what, what I wrote down before I heard the, the interview was that in every single case, you take something that I thought of as like biology is stacked against us because mm. of the mismatch. And you point out the upside of that very same biology. So, you know, we have the the you know, the impulse to eat as much food as we can. And we also have this willpower instinct in our brains. The stress can kill us and stress can also enable and ennoble us. And here, like my, my narrative around movement is, well, we all want to do as little of it as possible because we grew up in the savannah where we had to run and chase every carrot and animal that we were going to eat. And so therefore, our, our biology is designed to get us to be as lazy as possible. And we have to overcome that in order to get our exercise in. We have to force ourselves into situations where we have to move. And you kind of busted that the same way you did with the other two books and saying like there are there are biological imperatives for movement that we can tap into and turn it into like a, a ride rather than a slog. Yes. So first of all, let me just um, thank you for highlighting that. I, I don't know that I've, I've heard anyone describe my work in quite that way. And I really feel like, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is, is help us come to terms with the complexity of human nature. And that for each of these topics, like willpower or movement or stress, we have competing instincts. And this is also true with my work on compassion. We have an instinct to protect ourselves or to, to hate and we also have instincts to love and support and be brave. And I view my work as helping people understand pragmatically the reality of competing instincts, that humans are not all good and not all bad. You've got all of it inside your body and brain. We are not an accident of you know, nature, that we, we, co we come with these adaptations that can support us. 
whether it's being able to handle stress well by rising to the challenge or connecting with others, or whether it's our ability to override destructive impulses because we have the capacity to predict the future and take care of our future self. And when it comes to movement, the same is true. We do have an instinct to conserve energy. And many of us experience that. Like every day when I wake up and my alarm goes off, I hit snooze every morning. And I think I don't really want to get up and exercise first thing. And then part of me is like, yes, Kelly, you do, because you know how you're going to feel afterwards. <laughs> and then once I'm actually in the workout, my brain starts rewarding me for moving. That's the competing instinct. Once you're doing it, your brain will reward you for it in so many um, wonderful ways that boost our mood, that help us um, feel more optimistic, that help us be more loving. It like exercise changes so much about our brain chemistry to make us a better version of ourselves. But it's that competing instinct. Your brain has to believe you're really doing it. And until you're doing it, your brain will try to convince you not to do it because we have this other instinct to conserve energy. And I think once you understand that, then you can override that impulse, be like, oh, you know, there's my brain conserving energy. Um, it forgets how it, in, in this moment, it's forgetting how great it's, I'm going to feel and the fact that I've got plenty of food in the fridge. So let's do this and then, you know, savor the actual experience you have. Yeah, for, for me, it's almost like a theological um, interpretation to say, well, you know, in my natural environment in which I was seeing sunsets and smelling the dirt bacteria and running with my tribe and dancing around the fire, like I would have naturally been a better version of myself. We all would have like it's it's almost like like a like a mythos of the, the golden age. And we're like we can we can re re reclaim it. It is. It's really interesting. So I, one of the things I was cautious about in uh, the first chapter, I write about the Hadza, which is one of the, the last um, living hunter gatherer societies. And when I was talking with people who spent time in that community, they kept saying things like, there's no depression, there's no anxiety, there's no like, internal rife and conflict. And I was like, are we just romanticizing this? Is that really the way, like, is that right? Or are we just projecting some fantasies about ancient human nature? But it does seem like there's something about when human beings live in small groups and work cooperatively to support one another and feed one another and have time every day for both work and labor and celebration and storytelling and dancing and singing, but they do seem to be happier and uh, and healthier as well, with like no signs of heart disease and, and other modern epidemics. So I don't want to over romanticize being a hunter, especially being a vegan. Like, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to go hunt for my food. I'll, I'll forage and gather. But there is something to the idea that that the human brain seems to have evolved in conditions in which we were pretty active throughout the day, both through labor and through celebration, and that we spent time connecting with one another um, that when we're doing those things and you've got music in your day and movement in your day and contributing to your community in your day and social connection, you're a pretty happy, healthy version of yourself. Yeah, I remember years ago reading an article that the, the, the bear, the polar bear at the Central Park Zoo was depressed and they couldn't figure out why. Like, seriously? Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, I know. Right, like, like, so like, like, when you, I think you I don't can't remember if you wrote, I took a note, I don't know if it was from the podcast with Rich Roll or from the book, but they're sort of talking about like genetic sensitivities to things like anxiety and depression. Yeah. And you talk about yourself as, as yes. sort of, 
But for me, like that makes zero sense from an evolutionary perspective that we would be wired to anxiety and depression. It's like, like, oh, well, let me share with you why. (laughs) Good. Um, good. Well, you know, as as somebody who has, uh, and again, I should say, this is a pretty emerging field. So who knows if it's all going to hold up? But there are these genetic variants that are associated with predisposition to a wide range of mental health challenges. And um, one way that people sometimes talk about it is that it's like a sensitive genotype, that there are people who are predisposed to be really changed by their life experiences. They are particularly affected by stress, by their um, early relationships with caregivers. Um, They may be very uh, sensitive to threat and vigilant to threat. And they also are very responsive to positive experiences and able to learn and grow quickly. Um, as opposed to like other genotypes that are kind of resistant, like they're hardy and it's hard to mess them up, but it's hard to also like really make them change and thrive in, in new ways. And so, you know, people who have this genetic vulnerability to anxiety and depression often have tremendous strengths when they're able to put themselves in an environment that is supportive of them, where they, um, where they experience safety and connection uh, and contribution in meaningful ways, they often thrive and make uh, you know, an enormous difference in their community and can have very joyous, meaningful lives. And also, you know, in other circumstances, are more vulnerable and susceptible to things like depression. So I think it's as a, you know, as a, a genotype to have, you want people who are changed by experience. You want people who are really responsive to the way the world is, because it makes sense that if you're living in a threat-filled environment, you want people who are really sensitive to threat. They are useful to have around and they might be more likely to survive. So I like to think of my own susceptibilities in that way as being, I am um, a sensitive, responsive creature who's really capable of change. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why I am drawn to psychology is because psychology is a great way to discover like interventions for yourself. If you want to create a life and an environment that brings out the best in you, psychology gives you so much information about what that looks like from a practical you know, standpoint, especially if you can't change all of the circumstances in your life, but there are ways that you can think and things that you can do to take care of yourself and, and that right. sort of thing. Right. And even, and even just the psychoeducation of saying, oh, this is how I am, why I, this is why I am how I am. And to frame it in terms of that positive, like to me, it, it, it's sort of like the, you know, you want some, most of your, your savings in like blue chip stocks and bonds, but you want to have some more risky <laughs> Right. So you want to yeah. have a balanced portfolio like any any society that wants to survive doesn't just want to have the stolid right. <laughs> middle. And but- by the way, these sensitivities that I mentioned are also linked to greater empathy. And so, you know, it's as a it's a human strength that can come with also some human vulnerability. And I think a lot of human strengths are like that, that there is sometimes a, a it, what looks like a cost, but that also is, uh, you know, comes in the form of a gift either to yourself or to your community. Right, right. So um, one of the chapters I loved the best, I think it was the first one about the like, collective joy. And yes, I, I had, chapter I, three. Yeah, I had, I had read the rubber arm illusion in <laughs> another context, but I love... I used to teach that in Psych 1. It really works, by the way. I spent, <laughs> so, I spent so much time pilot testing that with different people. You know, people have different susceptibilities to it. It's phenomenal uh-huh. when you have people who are particularly susceptible to it and they like scream, and, like <laughs> jump up. So can you can you describe what it, what it is and then yeah. how, how that and why it's interesting and why that's interesting in the context of, of shared movement? 
Okay, so if you're listening to this, try to imagine that you are in a psychology study and they sit you down at a desk and ask you to place both of your elbows and your forearms on the desk. And then you are going to take your right arm and lower it underneath the desk so you can no longer see it. And the experimenter is going to put a rubber arm that looks like your arm where your right arm used to be. So if you were to look down at your desk, you would see your own left arm for real sitting on the desk. And you would see what looks like, sort of looks like your right arm on the desk, but it's actually a fake rubber arm. And you can't see your own right arm anymore. Then the experimenter is going to take something like a paintbrush and start stroking the rubber arm while asking you to look at it. And um, because of the way that sensations merge in our brain, when they arrive at the same time, um, you will see the, the psychologist uh, sort of painting your arm. And the sort of the secret trick to this is at the very same time, they've got another paintbrush underneath the table and they're stroking your real arm. And if they do that at the same time so that you get the sensation in your real arm, but what you're seeing is the rubber arm getting stroked, you will start to believe that the rubber arm is your arm and it, even though you know it's fake, you look at it and it feels like an extension of your body. And then as I write about sort of the joke is the experimenter could then pick up a pair of scissors and stab the rubber arm and people will scream, like push back from the table <laughs> because their brain is convinced it's their real arm. So this might seem like just a interesting little neurological trick. But um, this is one way to think about why when you move in synchrony with others, you feel so close and connected to them. And the idea is that, like, let's say you go to a yoga class and everyone is doing sun salutations together. And so when you reach your arms overhead and inhale, you can see through your peripheral vision and maybe the mirror, everyone in the room lifting their arms overhead and inhaling. Um, this happens in a dance class. It can happen at a sporting event when, like, everyone is doing some sort of movement that they're coaching you through, like the wave that when you sense yourself moving in synchrony with other people and you see their movements coinciding at the same time as you sense your own movement, your own arm stretching overhead, your own breath inhaling, um, you start to perceive everyone else as an extension of your own body, like they are the rubber arm. And this can sound like strange, except when you're actually in it, what it feels like is this kind of joyful, hopeful, confident sense of an expanded self, like yourself takes up more space and it's connected to other people. It's one of my favorite joys of movement. It's one of the reasons why um, I have taught flow yoga and dance as my primary forms of movement, because those are the ones in my experience where it's easiest to feel collective joy and to get that kind of transcendent sense of connection to others. Yeah. When, and you wrote, I, I, um, quoted this, um, knowing the expanded sense of self is essentially a knowing that you have a right to take up space in the world. And yeah, I, that's I actually, part of it. I actually started crying at that, at the, the tragedy that we don't feel like, like, like in no other animal, like I, I would imagine worries about this, like from earthworms to yeah. dogs to antelope, like, but humans are like, it's so common, like, oh, I don't want to take up space. I don't want to bother anyone. And you can yeah. see it in our postures. And it's, it's both physical and also, um, you know, metaphorical. I mean, to be fair, there are many people who live life being shamed by others because of the size of their bodies, like you take up too much space or because they're a woman or a member of some other group that in a particular setting is not valued. 
And so the, the idea is, why are you talking? You're too young. You're, you know, you're female, whatever. We don't want to hear from you right now. So a lot of people can have experiences in their lives where they feel like they're being told you don't have permission to take up space. You don't have a voice. And um, movement is one of the ways that people often first feel that kind of embodied confidence that says, I do have the right to take up space. I am powerful. I belong here. And then that can transfer into other meaningful areas of your life. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like part, partly like the rubber arm illusion is an illusion, right? It's a trick that your brain can play on you. I'm not sure that the expanded sense of self in a yoga class is an illusion. <laughs> uh, thank you for saying that. I agree with you. It's, it's similar to, you know, in the, the nature chapter where I write about the woman who feels connected to um, her son who died of cancer. Mm. I, I don't think that's a trick, a neurological trick either. And I think one of the great things about movement and, and sometimes the environment we find ourselves in is it allows us to perceive things that are true, but intellectually, like it's, it's, you can't really think your way into them. You have to allow your brain to shift into a state where you're able to perceive them and feel them. Yeah. And my first experience with this is like, I'm, I'm not big on yoga classes. And I want to ask you about that. Like I have a, I feel like rebelling whenever I see people doing anything yeah. uh, in, you know, in unison. I was going to say in lockstep, which, which is already indicative of my bias. But I, I was introduced to yoga through, I don't know if you remember this tape or came across it, the Ali McGraw. Of course, with Eric Schiffman. Eric Schiffman. He was, he was one of my early teachers. Uh, he, yes, I love Eric. So, <laughs> Go ahead. So just, just, I mean, just this is the only tape I had. So you can imagine, like, you know, I'd memorized it. And at one point, we're coming out of like some sort of triangle thing and our arms are up and we're raising up. And he says, now take up the space that you now are. And, oh, I, yeah. I, and I just get I got the shivers like, oh, like that's again, it's not just words now. And and yeah. I, I would I would kind of draw back on that the memory of that sensation when I needed to be bigger in life. Can I I would love to share since you mentioned I mean, you, you uh, defined the tape by the celebrity who starred in it. But <laughs> um, can I mention something I learned from Eric Schiffman that has really informed my teaching? So when I was in my early to mid 20s. I remember being at a yoga conference where he was doing some intensive and I was right up front trying to be the good student. And, you know, I worked really hard on my poses and all of that. <laughs> and the woman who was next to me was really crowded intensive. There was something she, she was clearly struggling and I'm not sure how, whether it's mental health challenges, maybe developmental delays, uh, delays. There was, she was having real issues with a lot of things going on um, with sort of speaking, you know, out of turn and spilling stuff all over the place. And it was the kind of thing where you could imagine a teacher being a little bit frustrated or annoyed that this woman was taking up so much space in class and making so much noise and making a mess that had to be cleaned up. And I, of course, was on my mat next to me thinking like, well, I'm the good student and that's the bad student. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I don't know what I expected Eric to do, but what I remember is he was so kind he was so generous to her. He just made more space. I'm like, I'm like choking up thinking about this. He made more space for her and whatever was present with her and how she was showing up in the, in the class. And I felt very chastened watching that. And it was a, a very important lesson for me and what it really means to be a teacher. Um, 
and to lead community-based movement experiences. And I'm so grateful I had a chance to see that when I had only been you know, teaching for a couple of years. Um, and to have that, I feel like, you know, what a lot of what we've been talking about is the, the positive benefits of movement on your sense of belonging, your sense of, of self, your inner strength. And we, we also need coaches and instructors who allow for that and mm. don't allow movement experiences to devolve into, you know, feel guilty about that thing you ate last night. Well, here's how we're going to burn it off. Or <laughs> if you don't know the choreography, you need to be in the back row. I mean, there's a lot of ways movement experiences can be demeaning or demoralizing. And I've had a lot of movement instructors who have shown me what it looks like to be empowering. Mm. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I've, you know, Eric has had a, had a big influence on my life through that tape. Um, so if you if you're in touch, you can re, uh, re, re, relay my gratitude. And, and it's especially poignant because, you know, yoga in particular is a space in which there's an awful lot of, of bad behavior by by the people that we we look up to, you know, a friend a friend of mine was doing programming for one of the big um, institutions that does you know retreats and yoga and and things like that, and so she was always she was surprised so often that these superstars of the new age would come in and just be jerks. Mm. You know, it's one of the reasons I stopped teaching yoga retreats and at yoga conferences. I really stepped back from that that public part of myself. I used to be much more public facing in the yoga world and uh, it was a difficult thing to watch. It was it definitely that there was a lot of um, really inappropriate stuff going on. And I decided I wanted to focus on just having positive experiences in my own life and in my local community and creating those spaces where people felt safe and supported. Right. Which I guess brings me to a, um, another question. So and this this came up originally for me uh, a while back. I interviewed Stephen Porges, the, mm -hmm. the polyvagal theory guy, mm -hmm. and he was talking yes. about sound and and how oh, it, yes. it can be. Um, well, it's probably different, a different place from where you well, tell me. Well, no, so I'm me, familiar so, with his work. So I, I think about he's done some amazing work looking at how. Uh, a couple of ways, I'm just gonna like, I don't know what you were going to say, but let me tell you what I love about Good, it. Good, because this is going to be better. <laughs> um, so he he's really interested in the physiology of safety and social connection um, and stress. And one of the things that he's looked at is how different sounds can support us in shifting into a state of the nervous system that allows us to connect with others, that makes us feel safe, but not like in a cocooned way but in a, an open way. And so some of his work has looked at how uh, there's certain sounds, certain soothing sounds of a human voice when the, a voice is at a, a particular pitch or a particular cadence, um, certain musical sounds uh, can induce a state of social safety and then openness to social connection. And uh, in thinking in terms of yoga, what that made me think of is uh, he's looked at some sort of chanting and other things that, other sounding practices that can do that. But the other side of that that I thought was so fascinating, I learned from him and some other people who've studied um, how different stress states affect our nervous system, is that certain, certain stress states um, actually alter our brain's ability to listen to human voices, mm -hmm. that there are shifts that happen in your brain, and I believe even in your inner ear, that like makes it harder to, can make it harder to connect human to human and to, vo to voice and to listening. 
and that there are other stress states, like what I would refer to as a tend and befriend state, that actually allow you that that allow you to perceive and receive human voices in a more open way. I think like that's fascinating, and it's it's and this is not necessarily about movement, but it's part of this idea that when you alter your physiology, you are changing who you are in that moment and what you're capable of. And so while he's written a lot about meditation, breathing techniques, um, sounding that can do that, what I am so fascinated by is that exercise seems to be one of those neurochemical states that enhances our ability to connect with others and makes us more receptive to, um, to every part of social connection. Right. And I guess, you know, from from his polyvagal theory, I love how he, you know, doesn't break it down into either relaxed or stressed, but a, a kind of a different matrix of, you know, mobilization with or without with fear or mobilization or immobilization or mobilization with social connection, yeah. or with engagement. And so for me, like, you know, a lot of people come to to me to, you know, for help with their with their weight, with their health. And I see immediately they're in a state of, of dissociation, a fold. Mm -hmm. They, you know, I'll ask them, like, where do you feel this in your body? And they don't know what I'm talking about. And move physical movement is almost like let's let's ramp it up. And, you know, so, so now they're 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 sort of stressed a little bit, right? They're doing some some exercise based hormesis. They're they're pumping the adrenaline. But the way you describe this, you know, these bigger context in which we can move. We're not running from the saber to the tiger. We're dancing with our community brings in that social engagement. Yes, absolutely. And I, I feel like, you know, so I love that you talk about exercise as being a form of good stress. And there, it's actually, it's so fascinating how exercise acts as a stressor. It is different than other forms of stress, even at the biochemical level. So one of the things that you'll see is during exercise, there's an increase in um, pro-inflammatory chemicals in your bloodstream. And people have often taken that as like a, a negative sign, like, oh, no, those inflammatory chemicals, that's a, that's a sign of bad stress and you have to get rid of them. But actually the research suggests that the inflammatory chemicals that are produced during exercise are functionally different and they actually reduce inflammation, which is that there's something about the, the chemicals that get pushed out into your bloodstream when you exercise as a form of stress that it's functionally has the opposite effect on your health as the inflammatory chemicals that are pumped out into your bloodstream when you're feeling really angry at someone. And I think that I, you don't have to understand the technicalities of that, but what I want people to appreciate is that that is exercise. There's something kind of miraculous about the physical, the biochemistry of it that I have not seen in my research anything else you can do that promotes physical and mental health at every level of your, of your existence, every cell, everything that's in your bloodstream, everything that's happening in your brain. Um, it goes so deep. Right. So I was, um, I think my, my, my favorite study was the, the rubber arm. My second favorite study that you cite was that when you smell happy sweat, <laughs> It elevates yes. your mood. <laughs> yes. So it's so fascinating, right? Like if you get people who, to be angry and sweat um, and, and like you take their T-shirt, put that away. And then you have people who are really happy while they're sweating. Like, let's say they're dancing at a nightclub with their friends, um, living their best life. And then you put that T-shirt aside and then you have people come in later and smell the sweat. People like 
the happy sweat smell better than the angry sweat or the scared sweat. Um, and it makes that it improves their mood. So that like the state of mind that we're in changes the way we smell because it's changing the molecules in our bloodstream. It's changing the molecules that we are releasing through sweat. And um, I think this has some very practical implications for exercise. You should look for places where people are happy to be working out. You should work out with people who can find some joy in what they're doing. You should maybe listen to music or, or you know, exercise in places where the music is so positive that it's boosting people's mood um, rather than maybe like so aggressive that the sweat is going to increase your mm -hmm. sense of hostility or anger. Um, but also this idea that sometimes working out in um, public places can be an even stronger mood boost than um, working out by yourself. Because if you're in a place where people are moving joyfully, you can literally catch their joy by mm -hmm. inhaling their sweat. Right. So that brings me to the chapter you didn't write that I that I wanted you to. <laughs> so oh, I wonder if it's the chapter that I tried to write and I abandoned. Well, what was so it? What if, I tried to write a chapter on play and sports and my reporting oh. for it was such a disaster show. I thought the universe every single. So I like the examples in my book, the organizations, the the individual stories. I would often like get a tip or I'd stumble across someone online and I'd connect with them and it was perfect and it was inspiring. And when I was trying to write the chapter on um, recreational sports, not, not competitive sports, like not professional sports, every single time I, I tried to show up, it would be like, oh, the other team didn't show up for the final, so we're just all gonna go home. I was like, wait, what? And you're not even gonna like stay and play or go out for drinks. As like, every single reporting step I took, it just, it was like sand through my fingers and I thought, I don't have the nose for this, huh. that this is, I, I can't write the chapter that needs to be written for this. And so sadly, there's no chapter in the book about recreational sports, even though I believe that that is a form of joy of movement that is as hardwired mm -hmm. in our human, our, sort of our human instincts as the joys that I write about. So I apologize to anyone who wanted the chapter on sports. I believe in it. Yeah. I just couldn't report it. So what was the chapter mm. you wanted? Well, before I tell you, I was, I was curious because we first said play, my mind went somewhere else a little bit in terms yeah. of like, you know, de learning definitions of play, because uh, I'm very interested in this idea of competition and yes. and where it goes sour and where it's a natural thing. Um, so in interesting that that's With, not for you to uh -huh. write. Yeah. Was that the chapter you wanted on? Competition? No, no. Okay. I wanted a chapter on martial arts. Oh, uh, yeah. So I didn't actually do chapters by sport, but by um, what I viewed mm -hmm. as the human instinct that it brings out. In right. You. So, let so me, let, you know, my stories of martial arts are sort of filtered in like the boxing chapter um, or not, not the boxing chapter, but um, one of the main activities I talk about in the chapter on overcoming obstacles and finding courage and hope uh, were what I think of as like a boxing gym for right. people with um, physical disabilities and challenges. Right. So, I but, so tell me what you love about martial arts. Yeah. So what, what I thought about was like you had a chapter on endurance, which is, a, you know, endurance sports. You had a, um, a chapter about being in nature. And to me, martial arts is it, it's it's a way to bring out the stress response in in very um, carefully measured doses so that you're going growing resilience. So the person yeah. the person that you're competing with is in some sense your mortal enemy. Like that's a really deep thing. Like like humans are runners, we're dancers, we're also fighters. Yes. And and so this like the martial art I do is called Sistema. It's a, a Russian form and it's very neurologically based. 
Um, and so I'm, I find myself sparring with someone or playing with a partner and I'll immediately, I'll go into fight or flight or I'll go into rage and learn how to manage that or to, to, to manage the physical pain and the emotional um, embarrassment of being dominated by someone or the, the embarrassment of working with someone that I'm better than and dominating them. Like there's, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery for me around around that. And it feels as primal as running. I, I think that is really intriguing. I, I talked to some folks who were really into martial arts and it's I drew out of them different themes and what you're describing, probably because of who I am. So like, you know, a woman talking about the primal joy of getting to be aggressive or the mm. man who shared with me how his martial arts um, the place where he practiced felt like home to him, that it was a place where he had shown up so many times to move with others and that there was that sense of, of belonging. I think that what you described is such an interesting psychological dynamic. And it's, it's one of the funny things is when you write a book, you, it, this is true with any sort of reporting, unless you are the world's most objective journalist, is you elicit, you give people permission, I think often to share the things that are really resonant with you. And so I wrote a book that in a way is a reflection of the the things that I've experienced. Um, and maybe you should write the version of the book because <laughs> that's a, it's a really interesting theme. And you're right. I didn't draw that out of people. Um, and there could be a whole book that looks at the joys of movement in terms of how movement helps us deal with um, with dynamics around dominance and, and difficult inner emotions and the, the sort of primal instincts to survive and also be, um, you know, a version of ourselves that does that in like heroic and noble ways rather than destructive ways. Right. Because I was I was also thinking about because, you know, you were talking about like the power of group movement. So the, my mind immediately went to the Hakka of the New Zealand yes, All Blacks yes. rugby team. Oh, I, I know I had that. That was in a version of the book, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got exposed to that through Les Mills, which is a, a group fitness program based in um, New Zealand. And they have uh, they they integrate some of those ideas in their training of group fitness instructors to bring some of those those elements in so that people have you know it's it's not the same experience but it has some of that power. Yeah, because I because I was thinking about it not just in terms of the the New Zealand players but very often when they show when they televise the games they'll show you know the the English team watching and looking and you like you look at their eyes and you see like who of them are afraid who are up for the yeah. challenge like there's a <laughs> warrior wolves you know i wrote in that book about collective joy this idea that when people move in synchrony they are perceived by others as being more formidable mm. of being stronger of being a more powerful opponent and so it's one of the reasons why people move together in order to develop their own sense of confidence as a team or as <clears throat> as a community and you see that both in things like, you know, how, how teams can move together before a athletic event, but also when people come together to do something like a race for a cure, that they actually end up, or marching for a protest, they end up feeling that collective strength and that allows them to sense their own power for whatever their, their higher purpose is. Yeah, and that's what, I was, that's what I was gonna say around the Stephen Porges stuff with sound, where he was talking to me about, like, it can, that, those natural, uh, impulses can be hijacked, like by putting people in a cathedral and and manipulating them. So they're in just enough fear because of oh. the oral tones. And I was also thinking 
like and this this will tell you like where where my mental pro, you know emotional proclivities go. I was thinking about like Triumph of the Will and the the video of like the Hitlerian parades that look that are you know that are also bringing thousands of people together in synchronized movements, but in very yeah. dark ways. I mean, this is like that theme that we started with this idea that human beings for every instinct that seems admirable or pro-social, there is a competing instinct that often can be destructive or the same instinct, sorry, the same instinct can be used for both positive and negative purposes. And this is why one of the other, we didn't talk about this. One of the other things that is really important in my work is I try to focus people on core values that really bring meaning um, to their own lives and that also have some some sort of positive sense of contribution uh, connected to the more noble aspects of human nature. Because I think if you aren't clear about that commitment to maybe pro-social values, uh, you can have very powerful experiences that, that can bring out the worst in you if you, are, you, know, you don't wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I'm committing to honesty, integrity, kindness, whatever it is. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And I know you have to go in just a couple of minutes because uh, you just texted me that you do. <laughs> um, so I want I wanted to end with like the, the thing that like I share as soon as I finished reading the book, I shared it with the missing chins and said, like, this is Roberta Flack singing, singing our, our lives with with her story. And the thing that I love the best, I think the best is that you keep coming back to this idea of the experience of pride, of self-esteem, of doing something hard. And because like, you know, from from the willpower instinct, you're you're very well versed in sort of behavioral theory, behavioral economics, and there's this whole like future discounting thing, right? Present bias, yeah. where that's the problem that I I, I want to lose weight and be be a hunk tomorrow, but I don't want to exercise today because it's it hurts and it sucks. And I love how you show that ex that hurting today can be pleasurable today. That, that yes. And that's so important when it comes to something like exercise. You know, if you are thinking of exercise in terms of a punishment for what you ate or because the body you have now is unacceptable in some way, you are basically tying that, that difficult experience to difficult emotions like shame or fear or self-anger or regret. And you need to tie that doing something hard to something positive. Like you have to. And so I'm always encouraging people to find the actual joy in the movement itself, to appreciate what your body can do, to be, to be overwhelmed by your own capacity to do difficult things that are in your best interest, that are an investment in your health and your happiness, to take joy in seeing other people working hard, to let yourself be inspired by seeing other people push through discomfort or change and grow and have personal best. There are a lot of positive things you can experience in movement. There are ways to think about movement that enhance your sense of pride and gratitude and hope. And to, to really try to cultivate that mindset because it literally transforms the experience you have. Um, you know, there's one of the studies I write about in the book was they actually just asked people to talk out loud while they were on a treadmill and to say what they were thinking. And the athletes who would would notice that they were getting tired and think to themselves, wow, this is a sign that I'm actually doing something that's going to make me stronger. They were more likely to enjoy the workout and want to work out again than people who interpreted those same physical symptoms as I'm so out of shape. 
I can't do this, or I'm embarrassed that I'm sweating. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, often we have a little bit of self-coaching to do so that we can remember to have those experiences of pride and gratitude and hope um, in a, in an experience where there may be other messages we've been fed that could push us in the other direction. I love it. I love it. So you got to go in a minute. Um, there, are, there are so many more things that I would have wanted to ask you about, but people can get the book, The Joy of Movement. And if they want to follow you, uh, where do they go? Um, first of all, just looking up The Joy of Movement might be easier than spelling my name, but you can find me at kellymcgonagall.com um, and on all social media channels as Kelly McGonagall. Well, thank you so much for all the work you have done. Everything you have written has has improved my life in a in a clear and measurable way. And so it's an honor to finally get to talk to you and to thank you for that. And thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. All right. I hope you're ready to get moving after listening to that uh, wonderful explanation of why movement is so good for us and why it makes us human. Uh, maybe you moved while you were listening to it. If so, awesome. How do you feel? Um, if you want more information about all things Kelly McGonigal, check out the show notes for this episode at plantyourself.com slash 364. I've got links to all her books and a bunch of the other stuff that we talked about uh, in our conversation. If you like this episode and you want to share it with other people, I say go for it. In fact, why not tell one person about this podcast? If everybody does that, I would let me do the math. Those uh, little sound effects of my solar powered Casio double listenership and doubling listenership would mean that Apple would rate it higher. It would go up to the top of my um category and more people would find out about it and we could spread the word. I know this is sort of a grade grubbing for podcasters, but I can't help wanting to have more influence um, as, as I've gotten clearer about my goals here. It's not to play small. It's not to stay quiet. Uh, and so if you feel like that's a, a worthwhile thing for plant yourself and for me to be doing, um, you know, just sharing it out there, sending an email to someone saying, hey, I think you'd enjoy this. Have you heard of this? Um, would be a, a great favor to me and hopefully to them as well. If you also would like to support the podcast in other ways, you can leave a review. I need more reviews. I got a silly review from someone and it's up. It's number the third one on my website. One more review will knock it off. Um, and that would be great. Um, just, you know, go to uh, Apple, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, and just let folks know what you think of this podcast that also helps it rise in the rankings. So if, if presumably if you're listening this far, you don't think it's a uh, complete crap and you're willing to help me with that. Um, what else we have going on? A, a bunch of great conversations coming up. Uh, Carolyn Raffensperger next week, one of the um, most important environmental advocates in the United States of, of the last 30 years, I would say. And most people haven't heard of her and she kind of likes it that way. But we're, we're blowing her cover next week on the podcast. She is the um, the brains behind or the heart behind the precautionary principle, a way of assessing and litigating and making public policy that balances environment and the needs of people and economies. Uh, in garden news, we still have a couple of Napa cabbages, but other than that, we're just into um, planning 
and looking for uh, seeds and ideas for next year. In running news, I still was mostly out, but I did a run on Sunday that I was going to be sort of do a walkish thing. And then a guy ran past my house and he was going at a good clip and he had a Nathan vest on and and Hoka running shoes. And I didn't know who this person was. And I very rarely see runners on my road. So I just had to catch up to him and run with him for about seven miles and have a great conversation. And so I feel like I'm back in the saddle at least a little bit. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace is the theme music for this show. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous West African Kora music. And thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Dina Ahern, Jan Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, and Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colin Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsick, Jeanette Bellum, Gil Lacerre, David Donahue. Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Mashia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins. Reed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman's, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzanwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Krell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelman, Valerie Peltier, P.W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lynn A. Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli. Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lennon, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cards, Dan Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullish, Laura Heaton, Meg from Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sarah Sal, Sally Robertson, Parham, Ganshi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, and Karen Schmidt for your generous support of the podcast. Congratulations to Ian Kramer for making it into the Forks Over Knives magazine magazine this month. Way to go, Ian. And that's it for this week. No, it's not it for this week. That's it for this episode. We got another one coming on Friday, the uh, fertilizer. Um, find yourself fertilizer on Friday. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit, send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest, or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show, and it's free for everyone, and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one-time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selbleek, Air Adams, Tom Fonsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Tarona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Evil L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Pandivian, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Channel Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenane Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunn Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>